Welcome to episode 7 of Turning the Goldfields Green. In today's episode, we are looking at the documentary film just released called When the River Runs Dry. In the first half of the show, I'm joined by Andrew Skiok and Nathan Johnson, both locals who have watched an advanced screening of the film and come on the show to give their responses. Then later on in the episode, I have filmmaker Rory McLeod and film researcher Peter Yates, also both from this region, to talk about the making of the film. But first, Turning the Goldfields Green is produced on Jara Country, home of the Jarjawarung people. I pay my respects to the traditional owners of this land, their elders, past, present, and emerging. Salt, salt, of the earth, salt, 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 grass, Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. I have Andrew Skiok in the room and Nathan Johnson, and we are going to discuss the film When the River Runs Dry, which has just been released last weekend in Melbourne, and we'll be screening at the Theatre Royal on March the 4th with a question and answer session afterwards with the director, Rory McLeod, and I believe with Peter Yates, who is Rory's father and was a lead researcher in the film. They're both local Malden residents. So they've gone and interviewed people along the Darling River after the big fish kill event of 2019. And, and Menindee Lakes specifically. Yeah, that yeah. region of mm. the river because it's a very long river. Mm. So the three of us have been privileged enough to watch a preview screening of. We've had access to the film before it's been released and we're just going to discuss it a little, give some feedback on the film and then later in the show we'll be chatting to Rory and Peter who, who made the film. All right, so the first thing I really noticed was the beautiful shots they had of, of birds in the trees and mm. wildlife and I was sitting with Nathan and he is an avid sort of nature watcher and he was going oh I, uh, I don't even know remember what they were called but he knew the names of most of the birds and remember. lizards <laughs> and things yeah, the gray butcher birds and sacred that's kingfishers right. and yep. yeah oh, yeah oh, the rainbow bee eaters rainbow was the first bee. one that's right yes <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and they, they showed those shots the whole way through the film which was a blessed relief from the shots of dead animals and decaying corpses mm. along the riverbanks which mm. actually became very difficult to eat our dinner while we were watching the film because it was a bit grim and yeah. gruesome it interesting that from a nature sound point of view which is where i'm coming at it from every mm. time a a bird would pop up on screen, I was noticing that they actually got the sound right. You know, the calls in the background mm. were, the, were the species you were seeing. And Peter told me that they'd actually, they've won three awards for this film. Wow. And one of them is for the best sound. Brilliant. I think it was um, the Golden Film Awards in America, in Florida. Great. So, yeah. And little things like the... There's a scene where a, a kangaroo hops across a, a dry lake bed and it's a little bit of drone footage, so you're seeing the, the animal almost hop underneath you, mm-hmm. and subliminally you can hear put, 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 put. Yeah. Now, they, must yeah. have, they couldn't have recorded that live. They must have done that afterwards, but they've taken the time to do that and to do it almost subliminally. You hardly notice it. Mm. 
indicates how much care and attention they've put into the actual craft of making their film. Yeah. Now, Andrew, just as a segue, can you give us a little background about yourself and how you know all these things about (laughs) (laughs) recording nature and sound? I'm a nature sound nerd. Um, (laughs) Well, I've been sound recording in natural environments for 25 years or more, nearly 30 years now. So, yeah, I'm a wildlife sound recordist and um, taking those recordings and publishing them as recordings for people to listen to and enjoy natural places that perhaps they'd never get the opportunity to visit. Uh, put on a pair of headphones and you're there, you know. It's, um, and has that taken you around the world or has it been primarily Australian? It started in Australia and, you know, for probably the first decade. But we'd always, when I say we, myself and my partner, Sarah, we'd always wanted to... Um, travel overseas and just experience some of these places so yes we ended up doing extensive field work around the world in most continents now we haven't been to south america yet but uh, mm. Mm. and you live in newstead is that right yes yeah the wild west of castlemaine <laughs> <laughs> and so as i understand it from a conversation we've had in the past you have actually spent some time up at the murray darling river basin and done some recording up there and you've seen it over time yes I wouldn't say I know it intimately, but there are places that we've spent quite a lot of time. Um, Matawinji, north of Broken Hill, was where we first began sound recording, environmental sound recording. We did a crazy trip where we uh, we loaded up our bicycles and rode from Mildura towards Menindee, and we got caught in a rainstorm. <laughs> the road just turned to, to liquid concrete. <laughs> and, wow. uh, but, yeah, we've certainly spent a lot of time up around those that part of the world. And I, know, I feel like it's, it's an ecosystem that feels like, a, you know, something that I, I've got in my bones somewhere. Mm. So watching the documentary, did you, were you shocked or surprised at how much it had changed or have you noticed a difference over time yourself in, in having been out there? Oh, look, I mean, it's such a variable ecosystem, there will be times of, of drought and times where you see that, that kind of thing, even if, um, you know, we, the, the, the river is operating completely naturally. Mm. But seeing the extent of it and the fact that it, it doesn't need to be this way, given the current circumstances, is, that's really the saddening thing, that realising that this is largely our influence. The decisions that are made in high places that have created this ecological mess Mm. i was going to say catastrophe but there still is environmental flows coming down the river from what i understand but it shouldn't it's not in the natural way that it it should be so let's talk about the film a little what was your first impressions nathan do you want to yeah well i loved it um i didn't find it an easy watch it's a really difficult topic especially as someone who uh, loves the natural environment. A lot of that is uh, really hard to watch. But it's amazingly shot. Like you said, the the sound made an impression on me too. And I thought it was pretty well researched. And while they didn't cover all their bases in terms of a balanced presentation, they got a lot of different different voices, which was great. You know, everyone had a real care for that, that river. I was impressed by how much they had gained the trust and were representing the voices of the local Indigenous community, which can often be a bit reticent to get involved with the media. Mm. Um, So they've obviously created some relationships there. And 
it was very strongly told from that point of view for the first solid 10, 15 minutes of the film probably. Mm. And then it sort of switched to farmers and some other people who were involved at bureaucratic levels and and other experts. And it was interesting because I, I started to feel a little bit like, oh, I really want to hear the science of it, not just the culture of it. But they came back and forth. Eventually through the film, they wove all of these different viewpoints in and out of each other and kept on returning to that Indigenous viewpoint, which is so valuable to hear, I think. And there are a couple of characters in there that I was like, oh, I wish I knew you. I wish, you know, I wish I could just sit down and have a couple with you. But And that, that story of what uh, the landscape means in, in terms of the cultural narrative and the learning and passing knowledge down through the generations and how that was presented, I thought, was, was really nicely told. Mm. Yeah. I, I believe Peter's... Well, Peter's an anthropologist, Peter Yates, so he probably would have had, um, you know, that background and his work with Indigenous communities elsewhere would have created the, the ground to, to develop those connections and that trust. I know he's worked in, in various areas of Australia very closely with Indigenous communities. So, mm. yeah, what did you guys think about how the narratives were interwoven and how the story unfolded of it? Did it, did it come across easily I, I, and well? The impression that I got is it's an extraordinarily complex subject. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to be able to cover it in 50 minutes just felt like a huge ask. And I think they touched on a lot of things that, you know, it's, like it's over in 10 seconds. You say, hang on a second. Hang on. A pipeline to Broken Hill and they changed the... It's like, what's going on there? So there's a lot there that in the space of this film you just didn't have the time to, to explore. No. It left me with a lot of questions, but I think that's one of the strengths of the film as well is to get the viewer to really ask what, what's going on here. Yeah, and it, it certainly seemed that all the different voices and their different perspectives, they were all pretty clear what was going on. Mm. Yeah. So, Nathan, you mentioned earlier that it was a potentially not very balanced and I, and I noticed that they haven't really been able to get interviews with, perhaps they've asked, but they haven't actually used interviews with politicians or people or, or the farmers who are directing the water away from the floodplains and all of that sort of mm. stuff. I was, I'd be curious to hear their point of view, but I think also... We don't need to hear their point of view. <laughs> In some ways, I think that actually we know what it's about. They they mm. want to they want their business to succeed, and they're using what they can within the means of the law. And the law is allowing them to do this. In the way the law is currently set up so no one's been breaking the law they've just been taking advantage of what's available to them there are some aspects of the law that haven't been adhered to mm. and there's also historical aspects to this as well that for instance um, water rights that were originally set up for market gardeners have now been bought by international corporations <coughs> and they use them very differently and nobody's particularly gone in there and and reassessed it yeah, mm. yeah, changed the law because it's no longer appropriate. It's just somebody's gone, oh, okay, we can, we can do this and we can do that and that'll, yep. So it's, that's the complexity that I think, yeah. you know, is behind this, this story. The, what I felt... There's a long history to it and a build-up. There is, and, and I think what, um, what Peter and Rory have focused on in this film is the actual outcomes of this and what it's led to. Mm. Um, both environmentally and culturally, as well as 
when I say culturally, it's not just Indigenous people, it's, it's the local farmers, um, local communities who are very articulate in saying that this is just, it's ruined our businesses. So I think it's important to recognise what you were saying earlier about that it comes down to business. It's a particular kind of business. Yeah. It's not communities and local, you mm-hmm. know, farmers that are, are doing, um, you know, running the family farm. It's, uh, this is big international corporate business yeah and the interesting politics between the states too about what (laughs) what happens on one side of the border and how they don't care about the other side of the border you know i think it's really interesting commentary on human nature too about what humans are prepared to take for themselves it's sort of like a snapshot of what we're facing on a global scale in terms of this environmental crisis it's a few people are prepared to do a lot of grabbing and a lot of make a lot of money but they're not thinking about downstream, either downstream in terms of time, so what will happen in 50 mm. years, or downstream in terms of how it's affecting other people Ge- in their current time. Geographically, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's where I felt the Indigenous voices were so strong. Everything that they were saying, they were thinking about the bigger picture. And uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but when he was saying towards the end, look, just hand this over to Indigenous people. We'll run it. We're, you know, you government fellas, you, you can come to us and ask us and we'll sit down and we'll talk about it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, their perspective would be the kind of perspective that I think you would need to actually sort this out. Yeah. More inclusive, more, you know, starting with the environment and, and looking at how people are dependent on that environment. Yeah. And I think that what comes through, because it's such an ancient culture, and the stories and the lore and the dreaming and all of the knowledge embedded in that is a, is fundamentally how do you take care of each other and how do you take care of the landscape so that we can keep living on this land. This is what all of those stories yeah. are really about in their, you know, culture. And, you know, it might seem like it's just stories and stuff, but it's actually really deeply pertinent to land management in this dry country and what it means to do that in a way that can support everyone, not just you and your little group. Mm. And, you know, when Indigenous people are telling stories to each other, they're, we're unfamiliar with those stories and so we recognise them as stories. Yeah. But we do the same thing. We've, we've just got different narratives and they, that we've known them since we were children and, and we think that they're right. Yeah. But to outside people, they must seem as, as daft and, and you yeah. know, unrealistic as as anything when you look at the consequences yeah yeah true so what else about the film there were there were a couple of moments where i felt a bit lost like someone was explaining the relationships between you know this deal led to that thing and this many gigaliters and you know it got a bit and i just wasn't didn't feel like i was absolutely clear on what it actually what the sequence of events was or what it meant but i think it was clear that they knew what they meant. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the people on the ground knew yeah. what the deals had been and they knew what it meant yeah. further downstream. Did you guys find that? Uh, yeah, a little, yeah, quite a lot actually. Yeah, it's a it's a very hard thing to get your head around, especially as unschooled in that area as we are. <laughs> you know, it's not surprising. I have a story. Now, it's a bit anecdotal, so don't quote me on this, but... I was told that someone took a year off. They had a scientific background, so they're very well educated. They took an entire year to 
try and understand the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. So the government plan? Yes, yeah, the federal, the federal plan. And after 12 months, they still couldn't get their head around it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. from what I understand, that doesn't surprise me. I, no. I gather that there are something like 153 different kinds of water licences operating, yeah. some of them legacy ideas from the 1950s, <laughs> some of them predating the Menindee Lakes work. One of the big problems is that um, there isn't the measurement of, of input water, particularly on the Queensland side of the border, that they just don't know how much water is coming into the system. It's mm. they, they haven't got proper monitoring, and mm. when it floods out across the floodplains, there's no monitoring at all. Mm. Mm. So how can you build a scientific system when you don't know absolutely fundamental parameters? That's right. Yeah, and that that's yeah. in a system in Australia with our, our variable climate and variable rainfall and mm. and such like. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think it is an interesting concept that idea that was explained about water rights, where the government owns the river itself, but as soon as it's a floodplain, whoever owns the floodplain owns that water. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because environmentally, the flooding is so vital to all of the ecosystems and the longevity of the region, mm. but. At the time of the flood, it's just this mess of water. You know, you can see why people are like, you know, we could we could control that, we could make it less messy, but it's actually a vital part of the the systems, the natural systems. Well, I understand that reality has been corrupted in a sense that farmers have found ways of making money out of that natural flooding, so they buy water rights. The floodwaters are free. So that means they, once the floodwaters come, they can get the free water and sell their water rights and make a profit. So what, can you guys explain a water right to me? What does a water right mean? Um, yeah, no, I'm not sure I can give a, a good <laughs> definition. Well, my understanding is that uh, if you've got a river flowing past your property and you want to irrigate it, you purchase a water right to pump from the river. And, and that allows you so many litres. Yeah, yeah, so you can you can pump that water out of the river, and it, it you know the the system across the Murray Darling ba- Basin, as I said, there's 153 different types of these water rights, mm. some of them dating back to before the plan was ever set up. Um, but if you suddenly get a, a you know a huge windfall of free water, you can sell your rights for a lot more than you bought them for. So the mm. rights aren't specific to a location. You no. can sell them to someone else further up or down the river. And I well, guess it's a way for the government to, to monitor how much water has been taken out of the river. That's yeah. sort of what it means is it's an accounting system. Yeah, except that it's not and a, a way to make money. It's not a very robust accounting system in the, no. the sense that the, you know, the, the flow rates are set so low that uh, it doesn't lead to a healthy river. It, it's more, well, you can pull water out until there ain't much water left to, to mm. draw mm. I, but I, I also you know again an, a little anecdote here from many many years ago I was in India and um, as you do just sitting down with people and talking and I remember this this Indian man just saying how everything was people were trying to make money out of everything and he sort of waved his arms around and he said how can you sell the air how can you sell water well this is how you do it yeah so the services that nature provides us for free and which should be ecologically 
distributed as they always have been have now been turned into another me- means for making money mm. which is you know the capitalist project is is how to make money out of something that wasn't there before it was <laughs> free well <laughs> or, free. or else it never, didn't exist yeah. yeah it never existed in the first place you know yeah. i mean the idea of lending money and and generating a, a, an interest-based profit is is yeah. a, it's a total fiction or develop a product made out of a bit of plastic that doesn't actually mean anything but you can still sell millions of them because you can, <laughs> <laughs> you know suddenly a bit of plastic is worth a lot of money yes so i do remember the period of time of the fish kill in 2019 and how distressing it was to see that the imagery and but i i did feel at the time that i didn't really understand what was going on and i didn't have the full story so do you feel like after watching this documentary you've got a bit more of a clearer picture of what was going on over there yeah i do yeah the media stories the media coverage of that period was a bit vague really all's that all's we heard was the location an approximate number of fish or something like that and uh they didn't really know they couldn't answer why that why it's happened yeah yeah apart from the rivers in poor health mm. so yeah. what what's your understanding of it now yeah i'm not sure how to answer that really just that it, it's it's come down to bad management over a long number of years and the the fish kills happened because the river is in such poor health. Mm. Not just that it's it's not quite working properly, but it's really it's really sick. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's a combination of the drought, algal blooms sucking the oxygen out of the water, and then the fish have got small yeah, right. small pools to live in and yep. no oxygen. To, yeah, yeah. So it seems like ev- everything that has gone wrong has contributed. So it feels almost like a final collapse. That it, the the ill health has like been there it. for a long time, and yeah. and probably the river in in its normal circumstance could deal with a drought. Mm. This mm. is magnified. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. I was curious about going back to the idea of the floodplain and the yabbies that can live for seven years worth of drought, mm. and all they need is one year of mm. wet. And but if we're directing the floodplains away and not allowing that to happen, then all sorts of and the fish could swim up the river and live in the lakes for a while until it floods again and then they'll repopulate the river. And all of these little systems that happen in the boom and bust of that natural system was interesting to think about whether anyone even looked at those ecological systems before deciding to drain all the lakes and make farming the single priority. I enjoyed what Mm. one of the interviewees said about how you've got farming on one side and business as needing water and then every other aspect of society and ecology and you know culture requiring water like tourism and holidays and the indigenous people and the locals who you know their town relies on the fact that tourists come and you know all of these different things rely on the water being there but the farming that one element has been prioritized over every other aspect of our society and and over the ecology well, again, just clarifying that it's it's not farming. No, across it's not the board. all farmers. No, it's yeah, it's, it's a those, type. those community farmers like the ones in Brewarrina and so on. You know that aren't they're, they're, they're just they're out of business, and it's the same on the Murray River that 
water restrictions it's actually it's not so much that the water isn't in the murray river it's there it's flowing right past but the farmers are no longer allowed to access it Mm. again for political and and bureaucratic reasons and they're hopping mad about it so it's the large larger large scale industrial farms that are actually it's it my understanding is that you know things like the the big international corporations that hold these these big holdings in the upper catchment um they're growing cotton crops, for instance, which aren't really suitable for Australian conditions. The cotton's being bailed up. It's being sent to China. It's being turned into T-shirts, and they turn up at Target for, you know. Five bucks. Yeah. So, you know, the benefit to Australia is $5 T-shirts, mm. but at what a cost. Yeah. And somebody else is making the profit out of it. So our local communities, Indigenous people, and, and the ecosystems mm. are, are bearing that cost. And... You know, from a if you were thinking from a point of view of what's good for Australia and Australian people, you would just look at this and say this is nuts. Yeah. Whoever's making these decisions is is being irresponsible. Yeah. But you know, if you look at globalized flow of money, yep, it makes sense. So it's a scale thing. It's well, it's another example of globalization. Mm. And, and globalisation is, you know, when, it, when the cr- critiques of globalisation first appeared, I was a bit puzzled because as somebody that had travelled widely, I thought, no, it's fantastic that, you know, we're trading more and we're culturally, you know, there's more cultural exchange and, and people are moving around, um, you know, living different places. Globalisation is a good thing. But when you see this you realize now this is this is how it works globalization is just an excuse for for people that have are already powerful to extract even more wealth from natural systems at the expense of of local farmers communities and the environment to me it just seems like hang on we've been doing this before wasn't it called colonization once yeah it's just that we're the ones now that have been colonized so we're the people who've been marginalised and are disadvantaged now because someone else is more privileged and... They've got more money and yeah. money buys lobbyists and uh, it buys political donations and a whole range of other things. So, mm. yeah. So this film again is called When the River Runs Dry and was directed and produced by our local uh, Moldenite, Rory McLeod, and we'll be screening at the Theatre Royal on March the 4th with a question and answer session afterwards. Would you guys recommend people go and see this film? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think it's a good introduction to the subject and it's certainly very evocative. It's it's just fascinating Mm. to hear the diversity of voices and what they actually say. They're some really articulate people on this. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic, like, in Mm. that way. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was The Hunters and Collectors with River Runs Dry, as probably most of you will recognise that song really well. And when I heard that this documentary was called When the River Runs Dry, I immediately started singing that song in my head. (laughs) So I'm now joined with Rory McLeod and Peter Yates, both of whom live in Malden and were 
and made this film or the documentary When the River Runs Dry. Welcome, guys. Hello. G'day. Let me start first with the song. <laughs> was it hard to get access to the song? Not at all. I, um, what, what was hard to get was a title for the film. And um, somebody said, well, When the River Runs Dry. And I said, no, no, that'll be too obvious. And anyway, it seemed like the only option we had left. So I got in touch with Mark Seymour and the, and the Hunters and Collectors and they fell over themselves to... To let us use the song. Yeah. Well, I guess it's exactly what the song's about, isn't it? It's about ecological disaster and flow and effects of people's decisions now and all of that stuff. So Yes, your chickens are going to come home to roost. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that it wasn't too tricky to, to get the song. And it's woven throughout the whole documentary, which is a really nice thematic sort of moment. Uh, do you want to review our review? You've you've just spent the last half hour listening to us <laughs> talking about your film. <laughs> What did you think about that? Goodness. Um, I think you've got two reviewers there who certainly have their head around the issues. It was uh, yeah, very pleasing to hear people you know, picking up on, on the types of messages we wanted to get across. Yeah. They're absolutely right that this is such a vast subject matter that um, in 52 minutes, no matter what we tried to do, we were never going to be able to give you the full story the full story would take weeks to tell Mm. and even then we'd probably get bits wrong so yeah all we could do really was give you the feel of it it was about the consequence as much as anything we just needed to what was what struck me what really was awful about the media coverage of the initial fish kills and really for the weeks afterwards was indigenous people were utterly absent from the reports Mm. and so with my background the feeling was there's a whole lot of people out there who are hurting there's a whole lot of people who have something to say about this and the media is completely ignoring them Mm. and so it was very strongly in our mind to go up there and talk to indigenous people talk to the Bakinji about what this meant to them and they were immensely grateful they were really, really grateful that somebody wanted to talk to them because they've really got something to say. Yeah, well, that was very clear in the documentary. You had multiple really good speakers about different aspect, aspects of what it has, how it's impacted their community and not like impacted really deeply, not just, hey, we can't go fishing in our favourite waterhole. This is impacting how they teach their grandchildren the law and, you know, all of that stuff. I, I really appreciated those stories. It was... Very moving, actually. I know you've worked in various communities uh, around Australia, Peter. Ha- had, had you already met those people? No. No. No, I, I think it was just when you've worked remote for so much, people can, people can sort of see who you are. Yeah. But really, we went in and we said, we would like to talk to you about what's going on. And invariably, they said yes. Mm. And they did... They talked with, as you say, very articulately, but really willingly and openly. From our point of view, it was really hard because we have many, many hours of footage and some of those interviews went for a long, long time. We only use a tiny piece of each one. And we sat there, you know, I was doing the talking, Rory's behind the camera, and we've both got this pain just surging through us. We're hearing this pain and really just having to witness it. And... Mm. um you know, that was a good thing, but it was a really hard thing to do. Mm. And, um, you know, and I suppose you're, you're there, you're face to face. They know that you're feeling it. 
and um, that gave them the confidence to to really tell yeah. us. But we weren't just looking for, you know, what's your pain? It was sort of like, what is it? We're really trying to uncover what does this river mean at the much deeper levels of, well, it's, it's livelihood, it's spirituality, it's a whole lot of things. We really needed to uncover that to show what the cost of it is because it wasn't just, oh, yeah, the river's got no water in it and we can't get a fish. Yeah. It's so much more than that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Rory, you're the filmmaker of the pair <laughs> well we both are now oh yeah okay so peter's learnt some filming skills on the on the fly was it a team effort the whole way through or did one of you come up with the idea or like were you keen to bring the filming aspect into it or i think it was peter's idea he just he thought we both had you know some skills that we could bring to it to to make something that was needed and, and different so the way we went about it was actually Peter did a lot of the directing in terms of interviews, who we'd talk to, finding those people. Um, and the reason for that is he's, he's, he looks more respectable. <laughs> <laughs> and what a he, terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Just he's, he's older, you know, he's got a beard, you know, he's got a sort of grey beard. He's got the old man look. Yeah. And, and people respect that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it goes a long way in Aboriginal communities, actually. Yeah. Bit of grey whiskers. Well, I may be a, a man in the eyes of many people. I'm not necessarily very respectable. I'm still young. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, Peter did a lot of the on-the-ground sort of... He was asking the questions and I was focusing on the, the camera stuff and the sound stuff. And once, once we'd done all that, I, I took over the role of directing. And editing. And, and editing. And yeah. putting it all Some together. Some of the editing. I didn't do yeah. all the editing. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's amazingly complex, the editing, mm. and the choice of what goes where and how you weave all of those different voices in. Because you gradually meet more and more characters and hear more perspectives of, like, how it's impacted people and how people understand what's happened. And But you go back and forth between all of these different voices and different levels of, I guess, understanding. Like, you've got the townsfolk who are just like we can't water our farm doesn't exist anymore our family farm because we can't get the water and and then the indigenous people obviously as we've spoken about and then you've also got some more sort of governmenty official type people bureaucratic people who sort of understand the the sort of that level of how things worked but every single person was agreed and that it was an outrageous thing to have happened and do you feel like as filmmakers like we discussed how complex the issues are and how difficult it is to really wrap your head around it as filmmakers who've spent probably two years making this a year do you feel like you understand all of the ins and outs of it no but <laughs> the only thing you need to know to teach a dog tricks is more than the dog no we we certainly don't don't understand it all. It's vastly complex. Yes. And there's parts of it that you didn't probably nobody knows about yet. We haven't even seen all the consequences of what's going on. We certainly don't know all the machinations at the top end where, you know, the top end of town is deciding things that, uh, you know, will flow down, so to speak, mm. unlike the water. Yes. I think it's pretty clear that it's it's way too complicated and... Perhaps that's one of the many things getting in the way of it doing its job. Yeah, totally. I think that's a really good point. Uh, that maybe there needs to be a massive overhaul and a lot of the complexities need to be ironed out. And it sounds like like what I picked up 
especially was the way the two states weren't interacting with each other or helping each other out and perhaps it needs to be a federal issue not that I want to hand this particular federal government <laughs> much power over anything yeah, yeah. environmental but it's, yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> I feel it's, like there needs to be a, a someone in charge who understands the full river it's been very fashionable to blame the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and it's true they haven't done as good a job as they might have the Murray-Darling Basin plan was really it's been subject to so many external pressures, really from virtually day one. So they produced the plan. It was a Labor government at the time. Tony Burke was the water minister and he released the plan. And, you know, the next day, because of a little bit of politicking by certain National Party members, they had burnings of the plan in Griffith. You're not going to take our water away. So we had people manipulating the discourse from day one. You know, so you got that happening at the at the political end. You've got Queensland playing games. You've you've got New South Wales playing their own games, but also fiddling with legislation, allowing things to happen that you know are very doubtful. Um, I won't go so far as using the word corrupt, though plenty of people do. Um, and Victoria played its own games, so that actually Victoria. Victoria's recalcitrance was the reason we don't have federal management of the Murray-Darling Basin now. Victoria mm. wouldn't play. Really? And so, I mean, this is historical. It's not the current government. But, um, you know, every state involved, except probably South Australia, who always get the raw end of everything, has played a part in undermining this... Um, an effective yeah. way of managing the full system. Yeah, and it's, it's, everyone's behaving as though a system is an easy thing to manage and mm -hmm. it's just look after your patch and it's good. A yeah. system is a system. It's vast, it's complicated, and you never know the effect of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a lesson for our age in a way because it's like what we're learning with climate change and the climate emergency is about our global systems. And we've for, for so long been just ignoring the idea that what we're doing might have impacts. Whereas traditional knowledge and, you know, cultures like our indigenous people have understood that very profoundly and respected it. But the sort of modern industrial West does not really. No, well, we've hollowed out consequence to um, economic economics, and immediate. Yes. So the only thing that actually matters to us is does it make money for somebody important? And it's not even does it make money for somebody. It's the who is important as well. You know, there were plenty of people who enjoyed their livelihood down that river who no longer have that livelihood. They don't count. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting aspect that came out in the film. And as, as Andrew mentioned earlier, he was sort of talking about the difference between the multinationals and your family farm uh, Andrew mentioned something off air, something like there's only four multinationals that actually control some vast percentage of the, the water. Yeah, so he's, he's referring to the A-class licences, which is a particular type of licence that exists in New South Wales. Mm. And this, these are you know, water that is pumped from rivers under low-flow conditions. Approx I think there's 158 licence holders, but only four of those take something like 86% mm. of the water taken under that licensing. There's been improvements in that. So back at the time of the fish kills, A-class licences, you were allowed to pump when the uh, the threshold was 160 megalitres per day flowing over the weir at Burke. 
it's a very low flow for a river. Right. And so you were allowed to pump. And the rules were changed to the degree, this is one of the dodgy New South Wales things, the rules were changed to, to the degree that if the water's there, you don't, you're not, don't just take this year's water. You are actually allowed to take water for the next three years. Your in alley- case there was a drought. Well, in case there's a drought. But you're making a drought happen in some ways. <laughs> yeah, you're just moving the drought downstream. Yeah. And so, you know, the rules are changed. People aren't, therefore, people aren't breaking the rules, but it doesn't mean the rules aren't broken. Rules are broken by the policymakers, and they make these changes changes at the behest of lobbyists. Lobbyists. So, have you seen since the fish kill? Has there been action to change how all of these things are managed? Have you been following what's been happening politically around that, or have you been too busy making the film? <laughs> or well, has there not been much? We have actually. Ca- Do you so think it got swept under the rug after the initial horror? Uh, look, there's been action, not enough but there's been bits and pieces. The tragedy was that we didn't get a royal commission at the time. Had we had a Labor government, I think we would have had a royal commission. Uh, There's no way the LNP were going to allow that because too many of their own were going to end up with egg on their face. Mm. So what's happened since Mick Kilty has been put in charge of the, as the sort of the river cop. So one person we spoke to, one Aboriginal fellow we spoke to who works for the New South Wales Water Board, I forget exactly what they're called, but anyway, he said, never heard of him, didn't know a thing about him. And this guy's working on compliance stuff up and down the river and he's never heard. Speaking to another fellow who works for the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, he's actually in our film, but he, he wasn't working for them at the time, said, oh no, there are good things happening. They're chipping away at it. But really... The Murray-Darling Basin Authority can only do so much when the political interference and the politicisation of the, of the entire management process is undermining every outcome. It's tricky. This is where people start calling for a revolution, I think, when they start seeing things like this, because it's like we can't afford another season like that in a river like that. Like, do you, do you know people at the time were really worried that the, the cod, those really huge fish, would actually be made extinct by the extent of that? fish kill do you know if they if that has happened they're not going to be made extinct by that because there's plenty in of rivers. cod in other rivers in the murray in the Loddon, in you know they're, they're around but the re-jigging the removal of the menindee lakes which have been an important fish breeding ground for at least 30 million years the removal of the menindee lakes from the fish breeding um you know potential is going to have vast effects so tagged fish that are known to have spawned in the menindee lakes have been caught in the upper reaches of the murray connected but a long long way away yeah so fish breed in the menindee lakes and they travel right through the system it is a, a crucial part of the inland fishery and you know the plans of the new south wales government particularly and the murray darling basin authority were the menindee lakes are a waste of water because water evaporates and turns into clouds and then turns into rain. Yes, and actually this is, this is interesting because some of the people we talked to, this doesn't make the film, but some of the people we talked to said, there was some, oh, yeah, we've got family or friends up at, over near Warren, way over in the east, and they make the decision as to whether they plant wheat this year or not on the basis of whether there's water in the Menindee Lakes. Wow. If the Menindee Lakes have water, they know they're going to get rain. So they plant. And so they plant. But the Menindee Lakes don't just produce rain, they produce humidity and dew and all the things, all this little marginal stuff that keeps things alive in what is a very dry environment. 
And so the idea that you can just delete something like that from a system is mm. just unbelievable in its stupidity. It is amazing. <laughs> it's also interesting to think about the nature of what we're trying to achieve. I think we're still trying to anglicise the Australian countryside like when the first settlers came here they all tried to grow roses and and have green grass and we're still trying to grow crops and things that aren't appropriate to our landscape and they require a lot of water which we don't have i know that industry must happen but it seems like we're we're sort of trying to do the wrong stuff we should be thinking smarter about how we're farming and what we're farming yeah well going up there the the floodplains i imagine would have had trees all across them and the the main tributaries and every bit of land is cleared Mm. for hundreds of kilometers if you you want to go and find a place to camp well (laughs) you're in plain sight wherever you go yeah big dry flat (laughs) (laughs) arid landscape yeah yeah i grew up in that country did you and um i remember it being forested wow and it's not now I mean, there's bits of it that are, but I was shocked when we went back and started driving around. I was shocked at the amount of land clearing. Mm. And so this incremental, take a little bit, take a little bit, take a little bit, pretend the satellites can't see you. And the government clearly says it's all right because you don't hear of anyone being prosecuted for it. Mm. Um, Well, you do, but, you know, it's nowhere near enough. It's a death by a thousand cuts. And the thing is, in this drought, those farms are shifting sand now. So the people, they, they clear it, they plough it, and they plan on the rain. Because it's a summer rainfall zone, you get good rains in the summer, you plant your wheat, you get a fantastic crop. But if it doesn't rain, all your soil blows away. And what we saw... That was, lands on us in central Victoria. Yeah, or out in the Pacific somewhere. <laughs> yeah. um, what we saw was, in places it was appalling, the, um, the drifts of sand that were forming on people's wheat farms. Mm. Um, you know, this is just... People aren't farming in the way we used to. There's nothing wrong with farming on its own, but if if you don't farm like you're going to hand over your land to your children and their children... Mm. It, if you're farming just for the right now... Just farming for a, a big pile of cash. Yeah. It's, um, it's very different. There's no prospect. motivation to look after anything for anyone. That's a good point. Um, we're running low on time, so quickly tell me, you launched the film in Melbourne... This last weekend, how did that go? Yeah, it went really well. People seemed to, well, they didn't complain. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't get any booze? No, no, people clapped and our spies told us there were tears in eyes and steam coming out of ears. Great. Yeah. So that's probably good. I'm sure that there would have been a lot of, oh, we don't understand everything. But I think people starting to think about it and talk about it is really the goal. Yeah. And also, yeah, seeing how people have been affected by this is also part of that goal. It'd be worth mentioning also we had um, one of the one of the Indigenous people in the film, Bruce Shillingsworth, came to the, the launch and um, spoke in the Q&A. And the res- he had his family with him and the response of that family were they were thrilled that Aboriginal voices were front and centre because yeah. they are so used to being ignored. Yeah. And here was, here was a film that said, you matter. And they really, you know, they're just so appreciative. That's so great. So, you know, pat myself on the back, you know. It's yeah. just, that was good. It's just, <laughs> that's what we wanted to do. And that's, it would be appalling. Imagine if they said, but I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like generally getting good response and it will be showing 
locally at the Theatre Royal with a question and answer session afterwards on the 4th of March and again on the 8th if people want to see it. Without the Q&A. Without the Q&A. So is there another project on the boil or are you still recovering and promoting this one? (laughs) Rory, have you got any plans for future filmmaking? I would like to focus on something to do with what went wrong that these things are happening. And so that has a lot to do with how we value things. Um, at the moment, we value money and that's mm. it. At the moment, we take what <laughs> take whatever we can and we don't care at the effects. That yeah. So I'm interested in the cause of, of issues like this. Yeah. yeah. Great. Andrew Skiop in the review talked a bit about um, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we grew up with that you know, are absurd when you look at them from a distance. Yeah. You know, stories like economic growth. Yes. Stories like progress. I thought you were going to talk about a virgin birth, but go ahead. Well, economic progress. They probably that's a probably <laughs> fairly silly idea too. But I don't want to go there. But no, there's there's stories that look normal from where we stand that are absurd and are costing the planet. Costing the planet. And I think at a cultural level, you know, maybe we can pull them apart. Well, there's a lifelong project for you, Rory. Film after film after film. <laughs> It'd be brilliant. Mm-hmm. I will put this interview up on my podcast site and links to the film and to probably Rory's Vimeo site, which is full of beautiful videos of little birds having baths. And I actually really loved your, your little tiny little snippets of wildlife on that on your film site. So I'll put a link to that up. But it's time for us to go. Thanks so much. You fellas. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Pleasure. And don't forget to get along to the Theatre Royal on the 4th of March or the 8th of March to watch When the River Runs Dry. Salt. Salt. of the Earth. Salt. 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 Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASG. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may or may not read your email on the show and may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email.